I don't know what your various experiences have been. Um, I grew up, I was blessed to grow up in, in the church. My family, uh, all believers, uh, my father in the ministry. And so I heard the, the truth of the gospel explained to me at the very earliest of ages. And so I praise God, I thank God for the privilege of, of growing up in that home and, and that he revealed the truth of the gospel to me when I was very young. And um, just before my fourth birthday, prayed to accept Christ as, as my Savior on my mother's lap. We had a routine. You know, you have only a few snapshots of, of your young, young childhood, right? Very few memories seem to linger. Um, but I have that snapshot of, of that event. Uh, that was, uh, it was a routine um, very often for bedtime. My mother is a beautiful singer. And um, she would hold me on her lap in this rocking chair. And I can picture the rocking chair to this day, right down to the, the dark red corduroy cushion that was on that rocking chair. And uh, I would sit on my mother's lap, and she would sing to me kind of a series of, of songs before bedtime. And some of them were just kind of sweet or silly songs, and some of them were, were Christian songs. I, I, I heard... Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Papa's going to buy you a mockingbird. Not tremendous spiritual input there, but it was very sweet. It was my mother's voice. Loved it. But then I also heard, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And then Jesus loves me. And my mom tells me, I don't remember this part, but apparently I was showing signs of OCD from the earliest age because I insisted that my mother sing these songs in the same order every night. If she diverted, apparently I corrected her. <laughs> I don't remember that. But I remember the truth of the gospel coming clear to my mind um, at that point and, and God apparently oppressing on my heart while she sang, Jesus loves me, this I know. Uh, and I interrupted the song, actually, and said, Mom, can I be saved? <laughs> And so, of course, she, you know, paused and said, well, let's make sure you understand what that means. You know? and, and she did, and then gave me opportunity to pray in my own words, but to re recognize that I know that I'm a sinner, that, that that means I've offended God, that I need his forgiveness, that Jesus Christ has made that forgiveness possible by his sacrifice, and to accept that and, and, and thank him for that gift of forgiveness and of salvation. And I did. I did that night, about a month and a half before my fourth birthday. I'm grateful for that. And then uh, my parents were very faithful to take me to church, and, and, and I'm thankful for those, uh, those faithful older um, members of the church family who loved the little children and demonstrated how Jesus loves little children by being hands and feet of that kind of love. And um, I, I remember the, the grandma who had little butterscotch candies for us from time to time, and, and uh, it wasn't deep spiritual truth she was conveying by that, but it was Christ's love, and that was something that made it sweet to be in the fellowship of God's family. And then there were those, perhaps we can be a little honest, who were a little bit cranky. Those people who kids got just a little bit enthusiastic and started moving a little too quickly in there, but be ready to catch them up by the collar and said, don't run in God's house. Oh, okay. Well, it was meant well to be faithful, and it, and it points to, and as I reflect on this, I realize that there was a certain idea of God's house in their minds and the respect that it needed to be shown and, and what was to take place there. And it's based on certain understandings of Scripture that I would like to, some of it, actually challenge today. I ask you, is this God's house? And I'm going to suggest to you that it is not. I'll defend that as we go forward in our, our passage this morning. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 17, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. As we have been marching through this book in our study, uh, we come to this portion here where we uh, have just, we've just finished the uh, instruction on the Day of Atonement. 
And in the Day of Atonement, we saw the sacrifices that were to be offered once a year and the, the limited access that had to come through the high priest who would go through the veil with this offering, but only after offering sacrifices for his own sin. And then the, all the other elements of God's house, the tabernacle, or later the temple, were to be sanctified by the blood sacrifices and all that was to take place during that process. And so God was establishing very clearly for the Israelites in that time that the tabernacle and then later the temple was God's house and that they could only enter on certain terms and that they could only approach his presence, which was concentrated concentrated in that locality if they did it a certain way or there were serious consequences. He was establishing that there's one true and living God and one way to approach him. And that was very important for God to establish that for the people of Israel because as we have seen in our studies before in Genesis and Exodus, it was God's program to choose Abraham and his descendants through his son Isaac and then through Jacob and so on to reveal himself to the world. He chose this people out of all the nations of the world who had already demonstrated unfaithfulness leading up to the destruction of the global flood because of the wickedness, because of the turning away from the ignoring of God, their creator. And so now in in the aftermath of that, he chooses Abraham and he says, through you and through your seed, through your family, through your descendants, I am going to provide a blessing for all the nations of the world. So God's agenda was never to bless only Israel, but rather to pull Israel out from among the nations and to reveal himself to and through them for the benefit of the whole world. And so he's establishing how this can be, is revealing himself and his plan through the people of Israel, through the sacrificial system, through the tabernacle and later the temple. And we have many visual illustrations that he's providing of these important truths for the benefit of the whole world. And we see that interpreted as we have seen message after message. We've seen that interpreted for us in the book of Hebrews where it was pointed out that that was the shadow or the model of the true spiritual things that exist in heaven and of things that would be fulfilled as a foreshadowing that would be fulfilled in reality in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, later on. So we've drawn many of those connections. So now we come to this next portion, and it may seem a little odd to us on first reading. And why is God making this particular point? Well, maybe with all of that that we have studied, we are prepared to understand this, but that context is important. So we pick up in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, and, and I hope that you have a copy of Scripture available to you. I have so many different passages today. I started to put text into slides, and then I abandoned it because it was just going to take forever and ever to put all these texts into slides. So I hope that you can uh, join me looking at these places, all right? But our, our primary text where you want to keep your finger mainly is Leviticus 17, verses 1 through 9. So let's read that. Says the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Remember, Aaron was chosen to be the first high priest. His sons were to be the other priests following and serving with him. And then the rest of their tribe, the Levites, were going to be the assistants to the to the Aaronic priests. All right? So speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Now, there's the big setup, right? So this is the thing, beginning in verse 3. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Look at what that means in a moment. Continuing in verse 5, this is to the end, so in other words, this is saying so that or for the purpose of, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field and that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood of the altar on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and Burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. 
And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Very stern warning. So what is established here to begin with, we'll see, is that worship was to be localized for Israel. Worship was to be localized. I hope you've got a little pen and something you can uh, scratch some notes on maybe because the uh, cross-references might be helpful to you as, re- as you reflect on these things. Worship was to be localized for Israel. We see, first of all, uh, the location pointed out for us in verses 1 through the first part of verse 4, right? The location is to be the tabernacle and then later the temple when the tabernacle is made a permanent structure. So God established a physical, tangible location for his people to approach the one true and living God. He wanted to make it very clear, as I've said, that there's one true and living God and one way to approach him. And to assist that, he made it be this one location. This was a matter of worship. It did not apply to all butchery of animals for food, by the way, as we see that's hinted to. The first part might kind of seem confusing uh, when it's first mentioned in uh, verses 3 and 4. But then when he comes back, there's a little more clarification provided for us in verse 8 when you see these qualifying um, elements who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to to the entrance. So we're talking about sacrifices were not to be made anywhere else. So if a, if a person was planning lamb chops for dinner, they didn't necessarily have to bring that to the temple, although the mention of peace offering and fellowship offerings in, these, in this context and elsewhere where it's mentioned indicates that that often was and, and should be the, the practice. Because remember, the peace offering and the fellowship offering, these were just ways of coming and saying, thank you, God, for your provision. And uh, the the... You know, the inner parts, according to all the description, were sacrificed there before the altar, but then the meat was, was enjoyed by the family and the friends and those who would join them. So very often they would eat their meat that way. But we see here and in a uh, correlating passage that it wasn't necessarily required for every animal that, that was killed for food had to come to the temple. The important thing was worship, sacrifice. No sacrifice was to be offered up anywhere else and for a very specific reason. Deuteronomy, if you want to keep your finger here, if you want to look over here with me, I'll read to you Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 13 through the first part of 18, where the law is being respoken by Moses for a new generation. After the rebellion that leads to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, all the adult generation dies off. You have a whole new younger generation that have now become the adults who will actually enter the land of Canaan. And so the whole book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses teaching a new generation, and he rehearses the things that God did to choose and to preserve and to deliver his people and to give his law to them and what the law is and teaching them. If you obey the law, God says he'll bless you. If you disobey the God, he will curse you. So Deuteronomy is just kind of a big summing up of all of the things that come before it in the Bible. So here in this passage, this also sheds a little clarifying light for us when he addresses this subject once again. Uh, He says in Deuteronomy 12, 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose. And that points forward even to the temple being the the permanent place. In one of your tribes that you don't just anywhere around, uh, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, just that place that God shall choose. And there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and of the deer, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain, or of your wine, or of your oil, or the firstborn of your herd, or of your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your freewill offerings, or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God shall choose. So that's the real clarification, right? It's okay to kill and eat meat wherever God places you in the land of Israel, 
You don't have to make a whole trek from Canaan all the way to Jerusalem every time you want to have a steak. That wasn't the, the point of it. But you do not offer any of the things that belong to God, any of the offerings, any of the sacrifices. They're not to be offered just anywhere else. They were to be offered in this one place that God should choose. While they were wandering, it was wherever the tabernacle was. Once they were established, that place that God should choose, he makes very clear, is to be in Jerusalem. So there is also with this a very clear judgment, right? That God's treating it very sternly. The judgment is that a person would be cut off from among their people. What does that mean? Well, verse 4b, back in our primary text in Leviticus 17, second part of verse 4, it's mentioned there, right? Blood guilt should be upon them if they take their sacrifices elsewhere. That blood guilt will be imputed on them. They have shed blood, and that man should be cut off from among his people. Well, it's mentioned again then in, uh, in the last part of the passage there in verses 8 and 9. You shall say to them, this is kind of the summing up of that passage. It's kind of like bookends. Anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn with them, so if anybody who else has come to um, attach themselves to or to commit themselves to the worship of the one true God. So God was already making provision, right? It wasn't just for the Israelites. Other people from other nations, they were called sojourners. They were the ones who chose to come and attach themselves to Israel because they accepted the one true and living God. They already accepted that revelation through the people of Israel. And so they are held accountable for the same practices. And so those who sojourn among them as well. Anyone who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, is the tabernacle, to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. But we have to look at a couple of the passages. There are actually a number of passages that use this expression, but uh, two choice ones I think are helpful because one of them is in this very same book just a little bit later. So in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says this, and it won't be on the slide, I don't think. Um, but it says this uh, a little bit later, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who's those sojourners, who gives any of his children to Molech, one of the Canaanite false gods, one of the idols, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. There's that expression. And in the context, you can see that it means execution because he has given one of his children to Moloch. Prior to this, in Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 and 15, this expression is used as well, and we see in the context what it means. Exodus 31, 14 and 15, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. So there we see that expression cut off from his people clarified in these contexts. It meant execution. There, there are speculations that sometimes it might have just meant meant um, just being put out from the camp, and that's possible in some contexts, but we know that at least the, the, the generally accepted understanding would have been execution for this. So it's a very serious judgment, is it not? For sacrifice to be done elsewhere, but the location that God has chosen, God's house. Well, what is the purpose of this? Why so severe? Well, we see that explained there in verses 5 through 7. We see that God wanted the people to abandon and forever avoid the worship of the false gods of the surrounding culture. Let's read those verses again, verses 5 through 7. It says, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priests at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord, and the priest shall throw the blood of on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 7, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute for them throughout their generations. So really, God was making this 
location an issue so that they would stop doing what they had already been falling into, was following the patterns of the culture around them, and sacrificing to these, these goat idols. That was just part of that area and that culture. That seems odd to us, I know, but we do have some context for this, and also this idea of them offering sacrifices to demons. That seems a little shocking. Idols we understand, but demons? Hmm. Well, look with me, if you will, at Exodus 22, verse 20. See if I have that. Yes. Exodus 22, 20 is a brief reference, but again, it's leading up to, it's part of the delivery of the law that we've read before. It says, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So there's the judgment part, right? God is very stern about it. Exodus 34, this is where I want to get to the second point. Exodus 34, verses 12 through 16. He says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. These pillars and ashram were like totem poles that were used by the people. They were things that were set up as, as focal points, places of worship for their pantheon of pagan gods. So God says, when I send you into this land to take possession of the land, you need to just wipe out all of that. Get rid of all the pagan props for worship. And destroy them completely so that you are not tempted by them. Verse 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you might eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. It's strong language, I know. I don't even like saying that word so many times. But this is how God sees people going after other false gods. He sees it as a a harlotry. And the mention that God calls himself jealous, eh, we tend to think of jealousy as a negative trait. But that's because for any of us, jealousy is selfish. For God, jealousy is loving. Because he knows he's the only One true and living God that he alone is entirely good and therefore he alone is the one who is good for anyone else. So his jealousy is for our sake. It's like as a parent when you teach your children to obey your voice. It shouldn't be. It's usually not because you have a power kick because you just like to be able to order little people around. It's really so that when they start to run into the street and you see that truck heading down the street that they don't understand what's happening there, you can say, stop! And they stop because they've learned to obey your voice. It's loving to discipline them to obey you because it's preservative for them. Likewise, God says, worship me and worship me alone and worship me on my terms, not because it does anything for him, but because it's the most loving expression to tell people the truth. I am the only one who's good for you. And so when people would abandon, redirect their love and their their faithfulness and their worship to these false gods, it's to despise all that God had done for them, to save them, to preserve them, to provide for them, to share himself with them. So he considers that harlotry. We see that supported further in Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, verses 34 through 43, that's reflecting on these times when the people disobeyed God and went out to the nations. They did, they did not heed these warnings. They did exactly what God was trying to prevent them from doing. Psalm 106, verses 34 through 43, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. See there, that, that correlation between the idols and, the de- and demons. 
They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. You see what, their, what the pagan worship led to? When the people began to disobey God's warning and they began to follow the pagan practices of the people around them, offering sacrifices after the fashion of the cultural around them, it led to the worship of Molech, this false god to whom people would offer up their babies in blood sacrifice. And the details of how they did that are just horrific. I won't share them again today. I've done so before, but but just horrific. And so you can understand when you look at that context, what God saw in the future, what he was warning them against, when he said, you will not sacrifice sacrifices elsewhere, you will come sacrifice your sacrifices here at my location, the way I have dictated, so that you don't follow their practices, or you will be cut off from the people that seem so stern, but when you realize what he was trying to preserve them from, it makes sense. The innocent babies that he wanted to save through these commands give context to the sternness of that judgment. Just one more passage to kind of complete that understanding of 1 Corinthians. The New Testament looks back to this as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation of the... Uh, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. So here's that singularity of focus again. It says, consider the people of Israel. Look back into history. And really, literally, that translation uh, literally is Israel according to the flesh. Consider Israel according to the flesh. And here's this flashback in history. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Right? So if they're offering up sacrifices today in the New Testament era, they're putting all their weight in the Mosaic law and that sacrificial system. What do I imply then, Paul says, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. That's... I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So here again in the New Testament era, we see this clear understanding of the worship of false gods, the, the, the worship of, you know, that it's other religions, is the worship of demons. I do not want you to be participants with demons, he says. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. God calls for unique, singular worship. And this is what God wanted to warn the people from. So the location had a very specific purpose. God was putting everything in God's house as the focus of the people's worship. They were to come to this place, and they were to approach it in this way for the people of Israel. But now... It's different. Worship is now internalized to the New Testament church. It's not about God's house. We don't have a tabernacle today. We don't have the temple today. We don't have the sacrificial system today. It's different. And we can see, first of all, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ rendered the temple obsolete. And we've already looked at this when we've gone from one thing to the other, when we looked at the temple and the division of the curtain and so on, and then we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ. And the moment that he gave up his spirit, the curtain was rent in two in the temple, indicating that there is now no longer that kind of separation between God and mankind. That was God indicating that temple-focused worship is over. And Jesus predicted this even in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Sorry, I need to open that up for myself here. 
we have the account of Jesus when he was passing through Samaria, and he came to this well. And as the disciples um, went into the town to find provisions, Jesus carried on this conversation with a Samaritan woman, and he asked her if she would draw water for him so that he could have a drink. Right? And of course, she protested to a degree um, because it was unusual to her that, number one, a Jewish person would speak to her as a Samaritan, and beyond that, that a Jewish man would speak to her as a woman. So this was very strange to her. Well, in context, and this is very relevant to our Leviticus passage, after Solomon's disobedience to God, God sent the prophet to him to say, uh, your kingdom will not pass on entirely to your son, because that's a blessing from God for obedience to have that heritage. But instead, it's going to be torn. There's going to be a rebellion. And that's when we have the divided kingdom took place. After Solomon, we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Jeroboam led 10 of the tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes astray. And they chose Samaria as their new capital and established their own center of worship there to maintain loyalty amongst those tribes to keep them from traveling to Jerusalem where they might be influenced by going to that temple. So they made their own new location on this particular mountain in this particular spot in, in Samaria. And so that became a point of contention, and rightly so, really, but it was a major point of contention between the Jewish people and the Samaritans who were now also um, blended with the other nations in the culture. So they were viewed at, they were viewed with absolute prejudice by the Jewish people of the, of the other tribes, of, of Judea, of Judah, and, and of Benjamin. And so they looked at them as half-breeds as unfaithful, as apostate, and so on. And, well, these things were true. But Jesus wanted to set a new example for how to respond to those realities and wanted to be sure it was clear that the gospel was for them as well, that salvation was for them and for all nations, for that matter. So he strikes up this conversation. And, and so the first thing she brings up is the obvious political, social issue that would come up between a Samaritan and a... Jew from the South, and she raises this issue where she says, um, let's see what verse we're on here. He asked for the water. She says, how is it that you're speaking to me? Jesus says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's asking, who's saying to you, give me a drink, you should have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, verse 11, to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, already he's transitioning He's, he's turning this conversation from the mundane and physical temporal things to spiritual things. She has difficulty with this, of course. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus invites her to bring her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He reveals his knowledge of her personal life. And then in verse 19, she does what many people do when you try to share the gospel with them, and they start to feel a little bit of heat, a little bit of, you know, this is getting personal. So they try to throw up a smoke screen, try to throw up something divertive in the, in the conversation. So she brings up this socio-political issue. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I see you, you understand exactly what she's referring to. The, the, what was established in the Mosaic Law is Jerusalem as the location. And she's saying, well, I'm a Samaritan. You know, we worship here. You say that. So she's, just, she's trying to bring up this little controversial issue. Maybe it's something confusing to her. Maybe it's sincere in some way. 
But then Jesus gives this response, and this was this, this really big hint, this really big clue that we can see now. He was pointing to a change that was about to take place through his own sacrifice. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the revelation that's been provided to the Jews is faithful. What you've been taught has been confused. But, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. In other words, he's saying, you know, with my coming, with my arrival, things are changing, right? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the conversation spins on from there, but that's the part that I want to grasp hold of. Here Jesus was giving this big clue that things were about to change because of the, of the nature of his work that he was about to accomplish, his ministry. It was about to no longer matter where people gathered for worship. Meet on this mountain, meet in Jerusalem, meet anywhere else. Because worship is no longer building-based. It's now focused on the heart. So, second point in this, worship for the New Testament believers takes place in their own hearts individually and at whatever location they agree to assemble. The physical house of God is replaced by the spiritual building that consists of Christians themselves wherever they meet. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's a whole new economy. The temple and the sacrificial system and all of those attachments are obsolete because of the work of Jesus Christ. Location is no longer the issue. It's the relationship between the person's soul and their Savior. This is now what's important. So the physical house of God no longer exists. In fact, even the previous one of the Old Testament time was destroyed in AD 70. That was the house of God, the temple. The house of God now, the house that God has built through the ministry of the work of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, is you. It's me. It's us. We are the stones. We are the church. And this word church, in fact, doesn't exist as such in the Bible. It gets translated that way, but the word really is assembly. It's the assembly of believers. Every reference to the church in the New Testament is talking about people, not places. The earliest believers, they didn't have the privilege of a building at all. It was illegal to be a Christian. They met in catacombs. They met in, in, the, in the dirty sewage tunnels under the city. They met in caves out on the wilderness. They hid quietly in people's homes, which during the week was their place of business and their place of living with a family. And then when they came together as a church to assemble, what they did was sacred. The place wasn't sacred. The place is not the focus of worship today. That's why I put the provocative statement to you at the beginning, that I do not believe this is the house of God. It's a special building because we've chosen to make it so. We've chosen to make this be the place where we want to gather to worship. And so out of reverence for what takes place here, we strive to make it attractive and appealing, and we consider it important for it to be clean 
and welcoming because we want good ministry to take place here. We want fellowship to take place here comfortably and, and, and warmly and invitingly. But we don't do it because there's anything sacred about the building. This is just a building. It's a place of convenience. I know that's shocking to some people's sensibility. You might have to adjust your thinking a little bit. You might have to you know, work on this for a little while. But what about our brothers and sisters all around the world today who meet in forests on logs? Even so, I mean, I mean, I have spoken with a pastor from, from Russia some years ago who described how, how their people would have to all take different routes and arrive at different times to escape into the forests of Siberia in the dead of winter to sit on a frozen log to gather as a church to worship God together, to study his word, to sing together. Our Chinese brothers and sisters have to, have to hide in, in basements and closets and warehouses and wherever they can find. Is there something sacred about that place wherever they choose? No. It's the assembly that's sacred. It's the people of Christ that is now the house of God. So we should consider the facilities that we have as a blessing. We should, I believe, do what we can, you know, to, as I said, to, to enhance it for the sake of worship and for ministry. But let's keep in mind, if God should allow this to be taken from us, if it should tragically be burnt down, or if we're just no longer allowed to gather publicly and things like this, that is not, by no means the destruction of the house of God. That is not the destruction of the church. We are the church. We are the building. Wherever we may gather, no matter how secretively, no matter how humble the circumstances may be, whether it's in the back storeroom of an IGA, or if it's out in the bush somewhere, what has, doesn't matter. We are the church. We are the building. So here are just some things to think about in conclusion. As New Testament believers, we are blessed to have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And it's aided by the by the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. But we don't have to trek to a temple somewhere. We, we don't have to drag poor innocent lambs with us. We have the privilege of approaching God at any time. Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, unlike those priests of the Old Testament who have had to offer up sacrifices for their own sin. Our high priest today is flawless. Let us then with confidence, and this is, this is just great. This is, not just a, this is not a chiding. This is not ugh, instruction from the author of Hebrews. This is a welcome. This is an invitation that we should just embrace with joy. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a privilege to be able to approach a loving heavenly anytime, anywhere and be confident that you will be met with mercy and grace to endure whatever it is you might be facing in your your life. Worship is internalized. Another point, though, we are also called to gather regularly for corporate worship. And the corporate worship, when I use the word corporate, right, you understand the, word, the, the root of that is body. So as a body, we come together as a group to worship God. That's corporate worship, which includes our singing, our praying, our communion, our baptisms, this is all just part of our corporate, our joint, our, our sharing together in the worship of God. 
We're also called together for instruction in God's Word and for just the blessing and encouragement of fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are critically important for us to live the Christian lives that God wants us to live. So yes, I have the privilege of accessing the throne of grace while I'm driving my car, in the shower, while I'm pulling weeds in the garden, while I'm doing pretty much anything anywhere. And that's a great privilege, and I'm grateful for it, and I need to be faithful to do that. But that is also not an excuse to abandon the church. And the church is not the building. The church is the people. We are instructed not to neglect the gathering together. There is a physicality there that's a matter of obedience, of getting together. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter in what kind of a building. But we are called to gather. So we need to be faithful to do that. And that, again, is the passage I just read before in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And it's described for us throughout all the epistles of the New Testament, where we see instructions of what people were to do when they come together, how they were to fellowship together, how they are to study God's Word and worship together, and so on. So we see it's established very clearly for us that while we have the privilege of direct access as the individual, we call it the individual priesthood of believers. That's the theological terminology for it. Every believer can walk to the throne of grace through prayer and directly address the God of the universe, who is their Father, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. But we still have a call to obedience to gather. It's just that the place is not important. Whatever importance we give it, we have a blessing of a building, and we want to be able to use it well to enhance worship and to reach others. And so we honor it, and we're thankful for it. Last point, therefore, we should understand that it is our worship and our assembly that is sacred and not any building. God's concern for us today is sincere, Christ-centered worship, and we try to do that. You know, the songs that we choose are not for their popularity, not for their, just for their beauty, although we try to choose beautiful music. It, it's not just for, you know, how much of it, you know, how good we can jam on it or anything like that. And it's not just because it's one of the oldest hymns and my mother sang it and my grandmother sang it and my grandmother sang it, therefore it's good. Not necessarily. (laughs) We choose music prayerfully that is Christ-centered and that is centered on the truths that we're studying in God's Word. And we try to make it beautiful as we offer it up as a sacrifice of praise to God. And this can now take place anywhere. Not the location that makes it sacred, but the relationship with God that is based on the sacredness of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who promises to be with us and among us anytime, anywhere we gather in the name of Jesus Christ. That's our blessing. So while it's not my desire specifically to be controversial, I think sometimes we need to be reminded of the actual truths of God's Word and hold up our human traditions against what God's Word really says. When we instruct children not to run around the sanctuary, it's not because, I mean, maybe we shouldn't even use that word sanctuary unless we really understand it. It just means a meeting place, right? It's this space is not holy. The activity that takes place here is holy. The worship, the study of God's Word. The carpet, the chairs, this, not holy. Just props. If we ask children not to run around or run up on the stage or do things like that, it's out of consideration for the, for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Running and screaming might be difficult for people to enjoy their fellowship as they're talking. We don't want to knock our blessed grandmothers over by being careless and running around and climbing our furniture and things like that. We want to be thankful and good stewards of the things that God has given us. You know, we want to take care of the place. So that it will be a good place for, for worship. But it's a matter of practicality, these things, of stewardship. So let's be grateful for what we have as the church, not the building, but the people, which should also, again, be a reminder to us of the Hebrews 10 passage that we do have a responsibility to be the church, to be the assembly. What does assembly imply? Showing up being here, not just for what we get out of it, 
Oh, I can read my Bible at home. I can sing at home. But what are you offering to your brothers and sisters in Christ if you're not here? And we understand there are various circumstances from time to time that prevent that. But I hope it is your value. I hope it is your determination by God's grace, whatever possible, to be here as part of the assembly because you are the church. Whether or not those doors are open is less important. It's your presence that's most important. So let's pray and ask God to help us to be faithful in all of these things. Father, we just thank you once again. You have, you have privileged us with direct access to your throne of grace, that I can speak to you now as Father, that I can come to you with the confidence of a son and talk to you. I, I know that I don't appreciate this to the degree that I should, but I thank you. We thank you that you have given us this privilege of gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can enjoy fellowship together, that we can encourage each other as we walk together this Christian life in a world that is antagonistic toward you. As we face the struggles and the trials and the disappointments and the worries of a sin-cursed world in which we live. We thank you that you've given us your word, that we can read it, that we can study it and find you in it and learn more about you, to, to know you more rightly. We thank you for the beautiful songs that, that speak of and remind us of your truths, that, that express uh, lives of faith and, and all of these things that, that encourage and help us in our walk, that lift up our souls. We thank you for this building. We are blessed that you have provided this place for us, that we can gather together so comfortably that can be inviting to others to join us where we can carry on a ministry for our, for our youth and our children and other parts of the building at the same time. And, and uh, we are grateful. We are thankful for this space. But help us, Father, never to idolize it. Help us to remember that we are the church, that you have called us to assemble as a matter of faithfulness and as a matter of edification and so that we might worship you together. Help us to always keep our priorities and our understanding straight. That we would not be overly discouraged should this building be taken from us someday. Should our freedom to own such a place be, be stolen away. Let us not be discouraged by that, knowing that the church is unhindered. We are not restricted to this location. And that you will go with us. You will meet with us wherever we gather. We're thankful for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Sing with me, please, and uh, then we will.